Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series on Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where we're learning that even when things are unclear, God has clearly shown us what is good. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of a humble brag, but a humble brag is when somebody posts something on social media that's supposed to come across as humble, but it actually has the opposite effect. Let me just give you a few examples of humble brags. Here's one. Can we start a media campaign to question how I got into Columbia too? Still scratching my head about how I got accepted and demand answers. Hmm. Here's another one. I just stepped on gum. Who spits gum on a red carpet? One more, a couple more here. Our song has just come on the radio in our taxi. Awkward. The downside of my glamorous life, standing around for six hours at the royal wedding, my entire little toe is basically one unified blister. And last but not least, this one is my favorite. I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine, and I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Humble brags, huh? I'm bringing this up because today we're finishing the last of our three-week series in the book of Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, a series we have called 6-8. And in Micah 6-8, we read these words together. Here is the verse we've been studying these last three weeks. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In this series, we've been discovering that in a time when so many things are unclear, God has clearly shown us what is good. And today we're looking at the last of those three commands, to walk humbly. And here's what I hope to answer with us together this morning. What does it look like to walk humbly with God? Now, if I were to ask you what the first sin ever committed was, how would you answer that question? What if I told you it happened probably even before Adam and Eve even existed? In Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we're given a picture of heaven, and it speaks about an archangel of the name of Lucifer, who was the one who was pointed to lead all of creation in worship of God. He was also one of God's main lieutenants, giving orders to lesser angels. But unfortunately, that wasn't enough for him. And he decided he was the one who deserved to be worshipped, not God. And so he rebels against God. This brought instant judgment from God. And Lucifer was cast from heaven along with all the angels who rebelled with him. Now, unfortunately, that is not the end of Lucifer's story. We read in Genesis chapter 3 that he has plans to ruin God's creation, the creation he created in his own image, human beings as well. And what tool does Lucifer use to get Adam and Eve to fall? The same thing that caused him to fall. In fact, look at Genesis 3 verse 5. This is Lucifer or Satan speaking. For God knows that when you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And of course, we know the rest of the story. They did take that fruit and eat it. What ultimately was the cause of their fall? Pride for both of them. When I was in high school, I read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and still to this day, I would say it's the second most important book I've ever read in my life apart from the Bible. And one of the chapters I have highlighted, almost the entire chapter, is a chapter he does on pride. 
In this chapter, Lewis says, if you're following on your notes, pride is the root of all other sin. Pride is the root of all other sin. Now, when I first read that, it stunned me. But as I think about what Scripture says and about our own lives, I think he's nailed it right on the head, right? Because pride, we're told in the Bible, is something that God hates more than anything. In fact, we're told multiple times in the Bible that God is actively opposed to pride. For example, in James chapter 4, verse 6, we read this. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He opposes pride. Why? What's so bad about pride? Well, the answer is pride is when you and I, as God's creation, attempt to put our place, to, to put our place in the place of the creator. We want to become our own gods. We want to rule like God. Let me put it another way. Pride takes all kinds of different forms, but it always has one ultimate end, self-glorification. That is the motivation of pride, to rob God of his glory in order to pursue our own glory, to place ourselves above God, to be our own God. Unfortunately, there is only one God. So what's the remedy to this temptation towards pride? Well, we saw it right there in James, right? Humility. Humility. If you're following again on your notes, humility is the most foundational of all Christian virtues. The most foundational, the most important. Now you might say, well, what about the fruit of the Spirit? Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those are all important. But you can't have any of that fruit grow out of your life until you first have humility. Honestly, I will say it as boldly as this. You cannot be a true follower of Jesus without humility. I like how one author put it, no one struts through the narrow gate that leads into the kingdom. No one high steps their way down the narrow path. We are sheep, not peacocks, servants, not sovereigns. If Christ is to fill our lives, we must empty ourselves. If Christ is to increase, we must decrease. Now, as we all know, though, humility is a tough virtue to get right. Again, I love how Lewis puts it. Humility is one of those things that if you think you have it, you don't. Humility is also often misunderstood. Sometimes it's seen as being a doormat to other people or it's seen as a weakness. In fact, in the ancient Greek and Roman world, they despised this virtue of humility. It was the worst of all virtues. And yet as followers of Jesus, we must come to the point where we believe it is the most important of all virtues. And so what is it? What is humility? Well, let me define it for us this morning, maybe in a way that you've never heard it defined before. This is how I would define humility if you're on your notes. Humility is a willingness to use our power in service to others. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember how I defined injustice. We were talking about acting justly last week. Injustice is when somebody who has power abuses that power against somebody who is weaker or underneath them. And so in many ways, humility is the opposite of this. It's saying no to our power, saying no to our rights, setting that aside for the sake of another person. Now, here's what's amazing about God's call for us to act humbly. God doesn't just ask us to do it. He leads the way. He does it himself. And friends, that right there is what makes the Christian faith unique among all other religions in this world. Our God 
actually set aside his power and humbled himself for our sake. He did it for us. And that's what we're going to be looking at together this morning as we study our passage in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 together. Now let me just set a little context. In chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul has just encouraged the church at Philippi to live their lives in a worthy manner to live lives worthy of the gospel to which they were called. And so in chapter 2, he starts to explain what that looks like. Let's look at verse 1 together. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Here, Paul is calling this church to unity. And why can they have unity? Well, he says you share all these things together. You share Christ. You share his comfort. You share his love. You share his Holy Spirit. So therefore, become of one spirit and one mind together. Now, unity doesn't just happen, though. And that's where we come to our big idea this morning. How do we get unity? Let's read verses 3 and 4 out loud on the notes there from the English Standard Version. Would you do that with me? Do nothing from self, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? How do we stay unified as a church? Paul starts with a negative. Do nothing out of selfish, selfishness or empty conceit. Selfishness. It's just another form of pride, isn't it, that seeks to elevate ourselves, our needs, our wants, our desires above somebody else's in order to get what we want. Using your power, my power for my sake, not for another person's sake. I face this temptation every night at our family when we have dessert. You see, you all know this very well. Whenever you cut brownies or a a cake, there's always that one piece that is a little bit bigger. And I'm tempted with selfishness to take that bigger piece. It shows up in our lives all the time, right? Because I'm thinking about myself, not others. Paul continues in the positive, though. But with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Now, interesting, that word consider, it's a, it's a word Paul borrows from ancient mathematics. It's a word that means calculate. When making decisions or doing actions, Paul wants us to calculate or count others as more important than ourselves. Add up the needs of others while at the same time subtracting the needs of yourself. Unfortunately, it's often the reverse for us, isn't it? I know it is for me. I often add up my needs above others and subtract the needs of myself and subtract the needs of others, always thinking about what we're going to get out of it. So back to that cake. If I'm to take Paul's example here, I'm supposed to subtract my needs and add up the needs of those in my family. Paul finishes with these words. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. To look out for means keep an eye out for people's needs. Be alert for the welfare of others. So when it comes down to that, and I'm looking at that bigger piece of cake, 
I remind myself, my kids are still growing. I'm still growing too, just not necessarily in the right ways anymore. So I look out for their needs instead of mine. And in selflessness, I give them the bigger pieces. Now, I just want to bring this back to Micah and the verse we've been looking at together here. What do all three of those things have in common? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Friends, they all require that we put others ahead of ourselves. And God says, that is what is good. That's what's good. I don't know about you, but personally, I find that very easy. Putting others ahead of myself, no problem. I wish. I'm constantly being pulled towards selfishness, towards putting myself first in my life. How on earth is that kind of living even possible? Well, Paul now pulls out the big guns and he points to Jesus himself as our supreme example of this kind of living. The same Jesus who now lives in us as his followers. The verses that follow are some of the most important and most powerful scriptures in the entire Bible. Look at verse five with me. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Where do we see humility worked out in life? Paul says, if you're following on your notes, Jesus is the supreme example of true humility. We've said it often in this series, God does not ask anything of us that he does not do himself. I want you to think about that passage a little bit like this ladder I have standing next to me here. I mean, think about Jesus in heaven on the throne receiving all glory and honor. He's at the top of this ladder. And what we just read in that passage is that he set aside all of that power. He came down and down and down. In fact, there's three clear steps down we see in this passage. The first one we see is that Jesus emptied himself. Now that's been a confusing word for people throughout church history. Emptying just means abased himself. And what's described here is not that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, nor does it mean that he exchanged his godhood for humanity. Rather, it simply asserts that Jesus took on the limitations of what it is to live as a human being, to live in the flesh. The picture I always get of this is when you're talking to your kids, if you have kids or your grandkids, and they're trying to explain something to you, they're trying to relate to you, and sometimes you get down on your knees, and you look right at them, and you engage with them. This is the picture I have of what Jesus did. He left the throne. He got down onto our level. He took on human flesh. That is humility. Second step he takes down is that Jesus becomes a servant. Now, some of our translations miss something there. They just say servant, but really the word in Greek is doulos, which means bond slave. And there's a difference in the ancient world between a servant and a bond slave. A, a bond servant is different from a servant. A servant had, was hired by someone to accomplish a specific task, but they still maintain certain rights. A, a bond slave, on the other hand, had the lowest status 
possible. He or she belonged to their master for life. And by the way, this is the way Paul often referred to himself as a bond slave to Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the lowest of the low. And then finally, the third step down, we're told he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus full well knew what it meant to empty himself, to humble himself. He knew that all of that was leading ultimately to his death, not just any death, a death so awful that it was reserved only for the worst of criminals, a death that was despised by the Roman law, and in fact, it forbade any Roman citizen to be executed in this way. And yet the divine man, Jesus, would be put to death by being nailed to a Roman cross. There he would hang naked, publicly exposed, viewed as an enemy of the state, and even worse, condemned as a blasphemer of the God that he served. But I'm not even sure that was the worst of his death. In that death, Jesus submitted himself to having all of the sins that those who would come to believe in him laid upon his shoulders. He who knew no sin became sin for his people, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Not only that, he suffered the full curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. He bore his sin upon his body on the cross, 1 Peter 2.24. Friends, if you're following on your notes with me this morning, no one ever humbled themselves more than Jesus. No one. No one ever started so high and descended so low. No one gave up as much as he did. And it is on that basis the Apostle Paul encourages every believer to have the same mindset as Christ. Live your life not by ascending the ladder, but by descending the ladder and giving yourselves to others, setting your power aside for the sake of another. But of course, Jesus' story isn't over in verse 8. It continues in verse nine. What is the result of his amazing humility? Let's look at the rest of this hymn together. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, if you're following, the result of his humility was exaltation. Exaltation. In humility, that is when he actually ascends the ladder. And did you know that God's promise throughout Scripture is that it's the same for us? Jesus said it himself in Luke chapter 14, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, isn't it? Friends, the world tells us to avoid humility at all costs. But God tells us that true glory, true exaltation only comes when we embrace humility. And so how do we do that? How do we learn how to walk humbly with God? Let's take this passage and apply it to our own lives. First, let me just pause and talk about this idea of walk. I love that Micah uses this picture of a walk. It's a picture used actually throughout uh, the Old Testament especially. I, I think, when I think about walking, I think about some of the 
favorite experiences I've had. My, my favorite walk of all time was a week after graduating from college, I went on a walk or a hike with some of my friends in Big Sur, California. Here's a picture of us reaching the top of this mountain in Big Sur. But the reason that walk was important wasn't just because we got from the bottom to the top of that mountain. The reason I love that walk is because of the time and relationship I had with my friends. Time to laugh, time to struggle together, time to talk about deep, meaningful things. Friends, walking is more than just getting from a place to another place, especially when it's used in the Old Testament. In fact, if you're following on your notes there, walking is symbolic of a daily relationship. Let me give you just a couple examples. First, Genesis 5.22 talks about a man named Enoch, and this is what it says about him. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. What an amazing statement to be described in your life, right? Enoch walked faithfully with God. First of all, 300 years, that's a long time. Second of all, he is remembered in Scripture for how he faithfully walked with God throughout his life. On the other hand, here's what we read in Leviticus 26, 12. God says this to his people, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. What a beautiful image, right? When he says, I will walk among you. He says, I am in it for the long haul with you. This is a relationship. He is covenanting with his people to be with them through thick and thin. There's other examples I could show you. I mean, just think about the life of Jesus, who was a rabbi. A rabbi walked from town to town to town. Can you imagine the kind of relationship he formed with the disciples while he did that? Walking means God will be with us in the good times and the bad times. It's not a one-time thing. Walking with God is a commitment. And therefore, we commit to walking humbly with God, and he then will in turn walk with us. So how does our walk with God, our humble walk with God begin? Well, there's always the first step. And the first step, if you're following on your notes there, is to admit our pride and repent. Friends, this is how every single person comes to Jesus, period. It is the start of every person's walk with Jesus. Our path always starts at the cross of Jesus Christ, acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our pride, recognizing that he alone can save us. It takes humility to say, I am helpless without you, God. My natural bent is pride. I want to be my own God. I am selfish at my core. I am the one who can save me. But the gospel in Ephesians 2 reminds us of this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that what? No one can boast. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. Again, in Mere Christianity, Lewis discusses this. He says, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. It is to say with Peter, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Or with Isaiah, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. C.J. Mahaney says, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness 
and our sinfulness. And it's only when we take this first step that we can begin the longer journey of walking humbly with God. Second step of walking humbly is to move from selfishness to selflessness. To move from selfishness to selflessness. This is what we discussed, right? Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And our attitude must be the same towards others. Selfishness is grasping. Selflessness is letting go. Remember our definition of humility. Willingly setting aside our power, our rights, our privileges for the sake of another. To do that takes selflessness. And so let me just challenge you here. Who is a person that comes to your mind where you need to think more of than yourself? Think of someone right now you have a hard time putting before yourself, being selfish towards. Maybe that person is your spouse. The Bible tells us that selflessness is the key to marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husband. What do those two things have in common? A mutual selflessness, setting aside your rights, your power, your privileges for the sake of another. Maybe that just means setting aside the TV remote for a while and actually listening to your spouse instead of trying to fix them. Maybe it's giving yourself to them and their dreams and their desires. Maybe it's your children. Maybe that just means slowing down enough in your life, getting all your to-do lists, putting those things away for a minute, and just spending quality time connecting with them. Maybe it's your coworkers and genuinely taking the time to get to know them as people rather than simply what they produce for the company. Selflessness is a muscle that needs to be worked out. Our natural tendency is to become flabby and selfish. I love this quote. The conductor of a symphony orchestra was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? What do you think? Without hesitation, here was his response. Second violin. I can find plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second violin with enthusiasm, that is a problem. And if we have no second violin, we have no harmony. That's a beautiful picture. Selfishness ruins relationships. Selflessness creates a beautiful harmony. Who do you need to set aside your selfishness for this week? Who do you need to lay aside your rights and your privileges for and serve? Third, walking with God means using our power to serve, not to be served. This is very similar to what we were just talking about, but it's actually taking that action step. And I just got to say, in order for us to do this, we have to have a completely new mindset or attitude. And that's exactly what verse 5 tells us. I have that printed on your notes there. Could we once again read verse 5, which says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. The key word there is mindset. What was Jesus' mindset? His mindset was, I am a servant And I'm using my power to serve, not to be served. So let me offer you a new mindset. Even though this isn't on your notes, I really encourage you to write this down somewhere. Here is a new mindset for followers of Jesus to have. Serving is not what I do. 
It is who I am. Serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. That's a new mindset. And a new mindset will lead to a different result in life. Let's say it out loud together. Let's pretend I'm in your home right now. I know whether you're going to say this. Let's do it. A serving is not what I do. A servant is who I am. Let's try that again. Serving others is not what I do. A servant is who I am. Now, we're told in the New Testament we're to have other mindset changes as well. One of them is, I am now an adopted son or daughter of the God most high. I am no longer alone. That's my mindset. I'm an adopted son. Another mindset we're told we can have is, we have been forgiven. We are no longer condemned. I am forgiven. That is a new mindset. Like those, what I'm suggesting is serving is not just something we do. A servant is who I am because I am now in Christ. And that is who Christ is. So that means I don't just go to church to do serving. I serve because I'm a follower of Christ. That's who I am. When somebody is in need and I see it, I'm not like, I'm going to do something good for them because I'm supposed to, or maybe I'll get noticed by doing that. No, that's just an overflow of who I already am in Christ. Serving is not something I do. A servant is who I am if I belong to Christ. I saw a great example of this this past week right in our neighborhood, right across the street. We live across from Kevin and Jenny Elliott. Jenny was leading worship for us this morning, and her husband is a servant, Kevin. Those of you who know him, you know this is true. And I watched as he helped a a single lady just a couple houses down, clean up all her leaves. Isaac, their son, was with them as well, carrying these heavy bags. Kevin's not doing those things In order to get noticed, he's doing those things because he is a servant. Sometimes being a servant means we have to take the lowest positions, which once again, Jesus models for us. In John 13, we know the story. John, Jesus takes the robe of a servant and he gets down on his hands and knees with a towel and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. This was a breathtaking deed. The Jews taught that no Hebrew, not even a slave, could be commanded to wash someone's feet, and yet Jesus did it in the most humble way possible, clothed as a servant, the incarnate son, God himself, dressed like a servant, washing the feet of his prideful, arrogant disciples. And then he says these words to them in John 13, 14, and 15. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus is a servant. It's who he is. And that is now who we are as followers of him. Are you willing to do the difficult jobs and tasks that no one else wants to do? Are you willing to do those things without holding a grudge, without thinking how great you are while you're doing them? Are you willing to be a servant to others without any expectations of something in return? Are you willing to lay aside your power and your rights and your privileges for the sake of another? One of my heroes of the faith is a man named Henry Nouwen. He was a professor at Harvard University. Talk about the top of the ladder. He was there, and he felt that God was calling him to leave that position and go to a home of mentally ill people and serve there. And he did it. He became a servant. It was who he was. Nobody could do that. Nobody could do that unless they had changed their mindset from serving is not just something I do, it is who I am.
am. Now, as I close, I just want to remind you why humility is so important. This is another mindset change I think we struggle with, especially as Americans. If you're on your notes, walking humbly is the true path to joy and real glory. Do you believe that? Because the world tells us that's just not true. The world tells us, friends, that true joy and glory come by going up the ladder. Even if that's the sake of others, by grasping after things the world tells us are important and are going to fulfill us. But the Bible tells us that real glory is descending that ladder. Humility is where it's at. Do you believe that? You know, the Christian life is full of opposites that seem to contradict themselves. We must die to self if we're to live for Christ. We must declare spiritual bankruptcy if we're to be rich. We must mourn if we would be happy. We must hunger and thirst if we're to be satisfied. We must lose our life if we're to save it. But perhaps the greatest contradiction of all is what we've had before us in this chapter. We must humble ourselves if we are to be exalted. But that's the secret of experiencing a good walk with God. Focusing on ourselves only brings misery, while focusing on others is the path to joy. God promises that those of us who humble ourselves, he will exalt. I'd say that's a better promise than whatever temporary promises this world offers. Amen. So as we close, here's what I think is the key question for us to consider this moment, this morning. And I just want you to be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Settle down in your soul right now and consider this if you're on your notes. Is my mindset toward others the same as God's is to me? Are you willing to lay aside your rights and privileges and power just like Jesus did for you in order to serve others? Believing that that is where true joy is found. This is what it means to walk humbly with our God. Let's pray. Oh God, what can we say to you other than worship you and praise you? That you would send Jesus, that he would humble himself from the highest depths, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, God Almighty, the Lion of Judah, would descend, become us. Not only become us, but become obedient to death, even death on a cross, all so that we could experience life, eternal life abundant life. We praise you that you are a servant and that we have life because of that. As we consider that this morning, we confess that we struggle with that. I confess personally that my bent is to use my power and privileges for myself, that I am selfish, that my bent is to be served, not to serve others. We confess that to you. We also confess that it's hard to believe this is true. Because every day we're being filled with messages that true joy comes from grasping, from getting more, from making ourselves the focus. Change our mindset, oh Lord. That true joy comes from setting ourselves aside for the sake of another, just like you did for us. 
We praise you and we thank you for your example and model. And now we ask that the same spirit who lives in you, who now lives in us, would give us the courage, would give us a new mindset about how we live our lives. Teach us and show us how to walk humbly with our God today and each day from now on. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.